0: The Animals Love letters between Christopher Isherwood and Don Bacardi Presented by Catherine Bucknell Simon Callow as Christopher Isherwood Alan Cumming as Don Bacardi Music by Edmund Jaloff. If you like this podcast and think more people should hear it, please rate it, review it, and subscribe to it. Episode 2. Something Bad Has Happened.
1: Once Don's show of portraits had opened at the Redfern Gallery in Mayfair, Chris left him in London and went back to Los Angeles alone in mid-October 1961. Into his luggage, Don secretly slipped a message.
2: Kitty loves his dear more than anything in the
1: world. After six months away, Chris was delighted to be home, charmed most of all by the purely domestic welcome of his and Don's cleaning lady, Dorothy. He was writing a biography of Ramakrishna, which didn't interest him as much as down there on a visit, but he wanted to get back to work on it. He counted up his money, got to grips with homeowners' chores, and dived into his network of friends.
3: Monday, October 16th, 1961. Casa de los Animales. Dearest own treasured love, I must get a few lines off to you tonight, although they will be hasty and not say all I want to. Oh, when I unpacked the suitcase this afternoon and found that Kitty had slipped a note of love in amongst the suits, tears ran down old Dobbin's muzzle. He sent Kitty a cable last night to tell him that all Dobbin's love was in London with Kitty. Kaza looks beautiful beyond all belief, especially polished up by Dorothy. We met this morning over at the Lawtons and kissed. I discovered from Joe and Ben Mazalink that she was anyhow planning on kissing me. Joe also says that she was so delighted because you wrote her and put love. She is really an angel and looks a little slimmer, I think. Terrific heat wave here. It was 105 on the beach yesterday. Today isn't so bad. But anyhow, this house is always cool, and I'm sleeping in the workroom again. The sun is setting right into the ocean already. Oh, how beautiful it would all be if Kitty were here. Tiresome thing. I came away without the notes and beginning of the new Ramakrishna chapter. They should be all together and on top shelf but one of the right-hand bookcase in the dining room. Nothing much to mail, just a few pages. You could put them into one of the envelopes. Now that I think of it... I am ashamed of the sloppy way I left all that stuff. The truth was, I was feeling so utterly wretched at parting from my dear. But I am so proud of him, too, and want him so much to take every opportunity he gets in London and not come back prematurely. I have never known what real pride was till I saw my kitty that night at the Redfern in his triumph. I called your mother this morning, but no answer. I will try again tomorrow, and I will call Ted and Vince this evening. I've already made quite a lot of contacts and dates, as I want to keep busy. I called Paul Millard, because I thought it was tactful from your point of view. He was bubbling with enthusiasm. He said, I really look forward completely to seeing you, whatever that meant. Heinz 57 Varieties, people sent me a whole case of goodies, Cans, soups, sauces, etc., with a note congratulating me on my 57th birthday. The Pearson's liquor store has been turned into a sort of Tudor mansion, almost too grand to enter. And you should see the poor old San Vicente market. It's as bad now as the Westwood Ho. All my love, and let me hear from you soon, I was going to say. But can you imagine the stupidity of that half-witted old Dobbin? He typed it all on part of the letter that was going to be on the outside, so it is a complete fuck-up, and I must put it into an envelope. I'm starting back at the gym tomorrow, and today I ate tiger's milk and lots of carrots and everything healthy. Be sure to let me know about any reviews. Oh, that money of my mother's has arrived already and has been deposited in our account, $14,038.50, so the animals will not starve. The money from Methuen's hasn't arrived, however, at the Chase Manhattan. I hope the English didn't grab it. Mountains of second-class mail, including all kinds of books and appeals for charities, and your film magazine sent regularly. Now I have to attend to the problem of the trees. I don't think we should cut down the live ones, do you? All my love, sweetest angel, and good night, drub.
1: The London Evening Standard, a tabloid, had trumpeted Don's opening party in its gossip column. A muted review of the work appeared only later in the London Times. This was the beginning of a career-long standoff between the pulling power of his famous subjects and Don's own talent. Right from the start, his work received big public attention, but seldom any informed recognition of what he was doing as a draftsman or a painter. It was thrilling, and it was also bitterly disappointing. Chris was already world famous twice over by the time Don met him. First, as the top novelist of the British literary left in the 1930s. You know, in 1938, Somerset Maugham spotted Chris at a London dinner party, and he told Virginia Woolf, who was also there, that young man holds the future of the English novel in his hands. Second, Chris was the creator of his own Broadway character, Herr Issivu, launched alongside Sally Bowles in November 1951 in I Am a Camera. Chris was secure in his fame— and even a little weary of it. So Don must have found it a shock that fame could be uncomfortable and take an uncontrollable form. He didn't flinch. As a movie fan since childhood and an increasingly sophisticated observer of celebrity, he understood why his audience got excited about his starry subjects. He also knew that he himself had chosen his subjects. Actors, writers, directors, composers, artists... I've often heard him say, I made my own bed. He was anxious, he was ambivalent, and he was already committed to his next show in New York. Although he wanted to nestle in at home, Chris fell in with Don's plan for the animals to meet in New York for Christmas. Don's final weeks in London took on a frenzied tone. He was painting commissioned portraits while he finished his term at the Slade and also wound up his business affairs and laid plans for New York and for his eventual move back to California.
2: Thursday, December the 6th, 1961, London. Dearest treasure drub, just a tiny minute to write my darling a little note to tell him how terribly rushed and fussed Kitty has been these past days. I had so much work to do at the last minute this past week that I couldn't even get packed and organize the shipping to California of all the stuff I've accumulated at the house. I literally had to cancel my Sunday morning flight on Saturday night. But I've turned this delay to my advantage and I'm having the catalog for the New York show printed here much cheaper that way which will cut down the number of things I will have to do in New York when I finally get there. I called the gallery in New York and prepared them for a late arrival next week. They said they would warn their framer to stand by for an emergency job. Otherwise, they did not sound alarmed. A man at your publisher, Methuen's, is taking charge of the printing of the catalogue here, and it is possible I will have the work finished by Tuesday next, and if so, I will send my clothes on by mail and take the catalogues with me on the plane." All this is, of course, subject to delay. The drawing of Igor Stravinsky stretched out on the sofa is being used for the cover. I think it might look very nice if all goes well. Eric Falk has been very helpful and has produced an accountant to advise me on my tax situation, which doesn't seem as serious as I thought. I'm drawing the Duchess of Leeds tomorrow morning and going to the Redfern in the afternoon to try to get as much money out of them as I can. I sent off by surface the Jenkins bags stuffed with clothes and three other parcels of drawings, paints, and more clothes this morning. They will arrive in California sometime in February, I'm told. I will pay all of the cost of shipping, etc., here before I go. I sent Julie Harris a cable saying I was delayed and will send the dub and her another cable each as soon as I know when I will get to New York. I missed the McKinnons on their way back through London. They're in New York now, and maybe I will see them when I get there. Richard Buckle has been very kind and helpful to the pussy, and given him advice and help with his problems. But nobody is quite like Kitty's old Bay when it comes to guidance and encouragement. Kitty needs his dear very much, and misses him so, and longs for him, and so looks forward to his white horse Christmas. All the cat's love to his dear. Horses only Santa Claus.
1: The cable telling Chris when he would arrive in New York was sent five days later. But when he sent it, Don was already in Manhattan.
2: New York, New York, December the 11th, 1960, Isherwood, 145 Adelaide Drive, Santa Monica, California. Stray kitten found in New York, mewing for a horse. If you know this cat, come at once. NYSPCA.
1: I was completely flummoxed when I came across this telegram. How did Don come to be suddenly already in New York without Chris knowing? After all the planning, it made no sense. By now, Don had let me borrow the original correspondence from which he'd made his typescript— I got out on my desk, this rustling plastic carrier bag. It's filled with fragile featherweight air letters, postcards, tiny photos, little drawings, clippings. It's all held together with rusted paper clips and desiccated rubber bands. I checked the original Western Union telegram. There was no mistake in Don's typescript. So I telephoned Don and I asked, why had he gone to New York in such a rush? He told me he'd gone to meet a lover. He flew from London to New York overnight, December 9th and 10th, and spent the weekend with Paul Millard at a friend's apartment without telling Chris or Julie Harris and her husband Manning Gurion where he was. He'd been having an affair with Millard in California before he left for the Slade. And after nearly a year without meeting, they ended it that weekend. Why did I feel that I had discovered something new? Don had already told me about the affair when I edited the first volume of Chris's diaries, and he had also told me that Chris never knew about it. The warnings he wrote to Chris from London about how busy he was and how unsure of his plans were perfectly true, but they were also purposeful. They were a way of creating a loophole in time, a lost weekend. Was Don nervous when he explained this all to me on the telephone? Maybe nervous of what I would think, or maybe I was the one who was nervous. The details brought the affair intensely to life. Paul Millard was an actor who'd gone into the real estate business and invested in property. He was good-looking, close to Don's own age— During 1959 and 1960, he loaned Don a little guest house to use as a studio. It was behind an apartment building he owned in West Hollywood. The name Paul Millard now seemed red-hot to me, like a neon sign switched on. I reread passages here and there in Chris's diaries. No, Chris hadn't known about the affair, although he had nearly found out in July 1960, when Don went missing for a couple of days— just as Millard arrived back from a trip to Europe two days earlier than announced. In his diary, Chris wrote,
3: July 14. Something bad has happened. The night before last, very late, Don said goodbye and drove off. He explained that he had to spend the night and last night looking after Paul Millard's studio because the friend doing it while Paul was away had gone to Claremont. This morning, Tony Richardson calls me saying he wants to meet Don early this afternoon. So I call Paul Millard's apartment and, to my stupefaction, find myself talking to Paul, who'd been back from Europe two days already, he says. So then I get an inspiration and I call Gertrude Applebaum because I know Don was going to draw her yesterday afternoon. And she tells me Don called her and told her he had a stomach upset, food poisoning, and a friend was looking after him. So he couldn't come. So now here I am, sitting on the phone and feeling sick with worry. And behind the worry, all kinds of other feelings crowding in. A voice keeps reminding me that he told me a totally unnecessary, elaborate lie. Or so it seems. But right now I don't give a shit about that. I only want to know he's all right. I am gradually getting very scared. And writing this is just a way of killing time. This makes me realize how desperately insecure the whole structure of my present life really is. It depends so utterly on Don and on my belief in our relationship. That's wrong, of course. And perhaps this will teach me something. But for now, the only question is, where is he? Later. Later. Don called about 11.30 a.m. It seems he really was sick. It wasn't just an excuse to Apple. And he did arrive at Paul's apartment the night before last and find Paul in bed asleep and leave without waking him. So he didn't tell a lie. And now it seems incredible that I should have ever thought he did. The truth is, I'm sort of half prepared for anybody to do anything. That's not entirely a fault, of course. It makes for understanding. Now I feel nothing but utter relief.
1: A totally unnecessary, elaborate lie. Unnecessary because if Don wanted to spend a night or two out, Chris wouldn't have stopped him. Nevertheless, Chris let himself believe Don's explanation, which seems like a kind of weakness. And he was immune to the implication that Don would be interested in Millard anyway, which seems like a kind of strength. Here was a decorum with which I was not familiar, the nuanced privacy of a semi-open relationship. How is such a relationship conducted? How do intimate companions create a space in which to conduct a second relationship while having the least possible impact on the first relationship? I was to discover that Chris and Don didn't really know how to conduct such a relationship themselves, but they were determined to figure it out. And Don must have wanted me to see this, to follow the inner, hidden story and come to understand what they were really trying to do, living together for so long. If he had told any lies along the way, he was correcting that now. He was insisting that I know the truth, that I see how difficult it was to have both companionship and freedom. I wondered whether he was thinking I could somehow absolve him of the necessary hurts. Whatever Don felt about Paul Millard, tension was building by the time Chris arrived in New York on December 12th. They met at the Gurians, where they stayed for about six weeks. They saw lots of friends, visited Gore Vidal at his country house in Berrytown, attended the premiere of Vidal's play Romulus in Philadelphia and New York, and a preview with Tennessee Williams of his, The Night of the Iguana, in which Betty Davis and Margaret Leighton were starring, and for which Leighton would win a Tony Award. They also got ready for Don's opening at the Sagittarius Gallery on January 2nd, 1962, getting the pictures framed, sending out the catalogs together. All the while, Don was receiving new commissions and doing new portraits. Chris met several times with his publishers, Simon & Schuster, about down there on a visit, and he picked up the first copies. The pace was hectic. They had no privacy. Chris had arrived with a bad sore throat. Recovered a little, then he caught a cold. Soon after Christmas, he wrote in his diary,
3: December 28. Rain turning to wet snow. The town is as gloomy as a fjord. The lights from the great towers shine palely through clouds. Down on ground level, it is raw and dirty. And all the delights and promises of the Metropolitan Bazaar can't conceal the fact that we're on a wretched, wintry island in a flat, ugly land too far north. Don's rat race seems far more desperate here than it did in London. We stagger up from our beds, dazed with sleep and already far behind schedule. There's just barely time for breakfast at the place around the corner on First Avenue, and then Don's off, darting through the traffic. The light's always against him, it seems, with his awkward drawing board and his kit bag full of brushes, inks, and pencils. He admits to the feeling that if he were to stop rushing, he wouldn't be able to work at all. This is probably true, at least as long as he believes it.
1: The show was a success. Sixteen portraits sold. But neither Chris nor Don liked the man who ran the gallery, Count Lenfranco Rasponi, who was a publicity agent for Italian opera singers and New York restaurants and a society party fixer. He's sort of running the gallery on the side. He urged Don to get a tuxedo and attend one of his balls and then criticized him for not dancing. Nevertheless, with even more new commissions, Don had to extend his stay in New York. so He asked Chris to swap airplane tickets with him. Chris was to fly home to California on Don's ticket, which was about to expire, and Don on Chris's later one. But Chris wouldn't risk the embarrassment with the airlines in case they got caught, and so they argued. The next day, Don slammed a taxi door on Chris, cutting his face. Chris decided to travel home by train. The last diary entry he made in New York was a dark and angry one.
3: January 23rd. So goodbye to one of the nastiest, most miserable phases of my life. I hate this city anyhow, and I've hated being here this time because of the way Don has acted. Right now, his nerves strung almost to screaming point and it is misery to be with him. I'm sure he hates me, and I rather hate him. I mean, on the surface. Underneath, things more or less as they've been for years. Whether we shall go on living together, whether we ought to, if we do, remains to be discovered.
1: He set off for Los Angeles on January 25th. Don stayed at the Geryons. After his train crossed the California border near a little town called Needles and headed into the Mojave Desert, Chris drafted a letter on the envelope containing his ticket. He dismissed their animal identities, which had now somehow been exposed as false.
3: January twenty 1962. Won't write a Kitty and Dobbin letter. That's sentimental. Though it's a beautiful, poetic sentimentality but I think we can still talk to each other by our own names, I mean, even when we're not mad. I realise I am deeply selfish. You admit that you are, but that doesn't stop me loving you. And perhaps we would get along better on the basis of being admittedly selfish. I said a true thing when I said I didn't like being good any more than you didn't like being bad. You are so much the reason for my life, My writing, the house, my teaching, you say that's just accident, anyone could have been the reason. No, you know that's not true. My selfishness is that I want you to stay with me. Your selfishness is that you ask yourself, couldn't you do better considering you were young? So my selfishness is really much more sinister than yours. I'm writing this halfway through my first scotch of the evening, in the Vista Dome, going through the desert beyond needles. But I'll copy it out if I mean it tomorrow.
1: Chris did mean it, as he said when he copied it into his diary at home. But he didn't send it to Don. Once again, he settled himself determinedly back into his Santa Monica life, concealing physical and emotional bruises beneath a veneer of cheerfulness and activity socializing, teaching, writing. Don went on building his career in New York, drawing some of the most interesting writers in town, including Tennessee Williams and the poet Marianne Moore, to whom he was introduced by one of Chris's oldest friends, another poet, Wiston Auden. Wiston and his boyfriend, Chester Coleman, looked out for Don. Don did lots of actresses, too. For example, Marianne Winters, who'd won a supporting Tony Award playing Natalia Landauer in I Am a Camera on Broadway, and Shelley Winters, who played Natalia in the film. And he drew Anita Luz, who's the author of *Gentlemen Prefer Blondes and a Hollywood friend of Chris's since 1939, and the composer Virgil Thompson, His reputation grew like a vine on Isherwood's. Down there on a visit, which Don called the Dubs story, was circulating in advance of its late February publication with a cover Don had designed and drawn. On top of this, he was making extra money doing fashion sketches for magazine ads. Perhaps Don didn't know how cynical Chris felt just then about the animals. Instead of the letter he wrote on the train, Chris had sent a newsy one— Don wrote as if their animal life had gone on without any rupture. Evidently, he needed to.
2: Monday, February the 5th, 1962, New York. Dearest only drub. Poor Kitty misses his old darling so much and suffers so in the big, cold, grey city without the warmth of horse's round body and the reassuring smell of hay. Lonely cat couldn't even bear to be fed his breakfast cream in the animal's place. And now every morning he casts about, alone and unbrushed, drifting into any nameless place with only the smallest hope of some stray kindness. At best, Kitty is shoved into a corner with a dirty saucer of skim milk. Dub's dear letter did come to comfort Pussy, though the days since then have been long and hard. But Kitty struggles on, working bravely every day and making some progress. Yesterday, he did some drawings of Frank Merlo and one of Tennessee. Only one, but at least it's the best so far. Also, Tennessee took the cat into the country in a black limousine to see his crazy sister, Rose, at a place called Stony Lodge, where, after a gruesome dinner, the cat was even made to draw Crazy Rose. The cat's tail brush also dealt with Marianne Moore on Friday, and she was so kind to him and stroked him and showed him little pictures and toy mice and her old watercolors. Though she didn't have one of her own, Kitty felt she really liked cats. One of the drawings in her usual three cornered hat, which Whiston objects to, is even quite good. Whiston and Chester have been very sweet. Wiston has commissioned me to draw Elizabeth Mayer, which I'm doing on Thursday. They had me to dinner one night. Irving Drutman and Michael Delisio have also been kind to a kitten. Julie and Manning, Marianne Winters and Jay Smolin, and particularly Bill Inge, all praise the dub's story very much. Tennessee was upset because he hadn't got his copy yet, so Kitty gave him his own because he thought his old horse would have wished it. Did more elder drawings of Anita Luz, which she liked even more than the first ones. Also some flying claw impressions of Shelley Winters, who was as impossible a sitter as I had expected. Terry Rattigan took the cat in his best night black bow to the opening of a passage to India and then to dinner with Margaret Leighton at 21. Margaret is mad to marry Terry and wildly possessive about him in fear that she might have to compete with a ball of fur. Imagine. But Kitty was gracious and made his position perfectly clear to her, as though a rat would ever follow a horse. (music) This afternoon, the cat's eye is on the Davidova, Vera Stravinsky's friend. Tomorrow, louis Louine Goodyear and Virgil Thompson, who is a commission from Igor. I saw them all only once at a big cocktail party given for them by their lawyer, Arnold Weisberger. Igor was terribly sweet, hugged and kissed me. Weisberger nearly fainted. And so was Vera. Bob Kraft, strangely cool. David Selznick and Ethel Merman were there. She wished Igor a happy birthday, and he said... It's not my birthday, and there was a deadly hush. Also, Jerry Lawrence, who is supposed to take Larry Paxton and me to Who'll Save the Ploughboy on Thursday. Lottie Lenya is written in to be drawn on Wednesday, and if she doesn't beg off again, that will be the last of the things I really wanted to do here. The cat is planning to be with his horse for their anniversary on February the 14th, which is a Wednesday, if nothing comes up to make him stay. Can't think what could. John Knowles wants to buy a drawing I did of him. He wrote that prep school book, a separate piece, and his Morning in Antibes is just coming out. And I drew Marion Smolin and Joanne Woodward and Paul Newman again. That's all news for now. The next word you have may be a telegram to say the cat is rushing back to his dear stable Isa on the next jet plane. His tail a Booster jet stream. All love to his only love, Tabby.
3: La Casa, Wednesday, February 7, 1962. Dearest love, your dear letter arrived this morning so full of news, and how sweet a kitty to find time to write it with his tiny tired paw. It would be lovely if he was here for the Animals' Day, especially as they missed being together last year. If he were to arrive later on Tuesday, Dobbin could meet him. I think he could get to the airport, direct from State College, by about 8.30 in the evening. On Wednesday, of course, he would be free any time. Went back to work at L.A. State yesterday. Mobs of people, and my class is jammed. It would be all right, I guess. But now I have three classes in a row on Tuesdays, and that is tiring. Dubbin is also going religiously to the gym five times last week and laying off bread and butter and such like. But I fear it'll be a long while before he loses his roundness. A letter from Joe and Ben Mazalink on some particularly exotic spot in the Hawaiian Islands and a letter from Jim Charlton still in Kyoto. He's had clap but continues to love the Japanese. Says nothing about returning. And then a very sweet note from Anita Luce, who has read and liked the first episode of my novel. She writes, Don's jacket is very moving and I feel that by the time I finish the book it will be almost unbearably so a record of how cruel life is and at the same time how seductive, as your works always reveal so poignantly. I don't really quite understand what this sentence means, but it's obviously high praise for both of us. I was astonished that she signs herself, "'You're devoted.' I think you must have a great deal to do with all this enthusiasm. It's something new.' She writes of your drawings of her that they are so full of character that they give me a fresh impression of myself. I shall see about getting your car put into running order. I've got the license plates. Talk to Parker, the accountant, today about renewing the insurance. He's finding out about all this. It's grey here now and has been foggy and sad. Today is raining and there is wind getting up, so let's hope it blows some fine weather along. Read the first 40,000 words of Gavin Lambert's novel Inside Daisy Clover. It is almost frantically readable. Maybe a bit too nervous and smart-alecky. I long to hear your opinion. John Houseman's measure-for-measure production was just awful, terribly acted, and the most tasteless gay 90s Viennese decor and costumes. i was also much disappointed in Kurosawa's movie Throne of Blood. But I think that'll still be on when you come back. Elsa Lanchester and Michael Hall, now her constant companion, were down at the Lawton House next door and called me over. Then Charles got on the line. He's in bed in hospital in New York, and he asked if you were in town and if you could come and visit him. I was vague. Vague. On being pressed for your phone, I gave him a number which I now realized was almost certainly wrong. So that's that. If you do want to see him, however, Florence Nightcat... He's at the Hospital for Special Surgery, 535 East 70th Street. Poor old thing. He's cracked his collarbone. Terry Jenkins is in attendance. Charles is very cold whenever Elsa suggests coming, according to her. All my love to my darling, and awaiting his telegram. Dub. Love to Julian Manning.
1: Don didn't get home, after all, for the animal's ninth anniversary, February 14th. He arrived in late February 1962. He'd been away for more than a year. He and Chris returned to long-established modes, but the emotional tension between them was to get much worse over the following year and a half. Don was really struggling to capitalize on his achievements as a portraitist and fashion illustrator, and to progress with his painting. And he explored an independent sexual and romantic life that was to change his relationship with Chris profoundly.
0: The Animals, a selection from the book The Animals. Love Letters between Christopher Isherwood and Don Bacardi, presented by Catherine Bucknell. Simon Callow as Christopher Isherwood. Alan Cumming as Don Bacardi. Music by Edmund Jolliffe. If you like this podcast and think more people should hear it, please rate it, review it, and subscribe to it. Join us for episode three. I want to talk cat-horse again. The Animals Podcast is produced by Catherine Bucknell and Shani Erez. Recorded in London at the Rhythm Studio with James Carey and at Heavy Entertainment with David Roper. Post-production by Toma Run. Editing by Catherine Bucknell and Shani Erez. Website by Zenobi Purvis. Podcast conceived by Joe Rodota with Catherine Bucknell. We would like to thank the Huntington Library, San Marino, California and the Wiley Agency. Don Bacardi, Catherine Bucknell, Penguin Random House and Farrah Strauss and Giroux donated rights for this podcast, which is underwritten by the Christopher Isherwood Foundation. Special thanks to cast and creatives for donating time to this podcast. Copyright Don Bacardi, Catherine Bucknell and The Animals Podcast 2017.